At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon. And we have a good one this week. Shocking. I said it again every time. But it is a good one. Mike Davis, the CEO of the USGA and a man that is about to move from in charge of the United States Golf Association to golf course design and having to go out in the dirt, push some hills with a dozer, get dirty. Life's about to change. I'm excited to see what happens with Mike Davis and golf course design once uh, his tenure wraps up at the end of next year with the USGA. Never had Mike on. Have worked closely with Mike over the years when we had a chance to uh, broadcast all those championships and uh, have gotten to be pals with him. He does a great job at the USGA, and I cannot wait to see what he does with golf course design because I feel like right now, if you call, you can call me crazy if you want, but we are currently, I feel like, in, an, in a time where this modern boom of course design, you know, when you go Core Crenshaw and Gill and Tom and, and Doak and everybody, I mean, Ogilvy, th- this crew that's going to come out, Tiger's doing a great job with golf course design. I feel like right now, when we look back on this era, it's going to be one that I feel like has a chance to be 1B or or the second in terms of how great the design was during this time of our lives. And I mean, you go back to Tillinghast and uh, and Seth and and the unbelievable job they did at bringing you know the the old school architecture to light and now into these dream golf courses we all get a chance to play or hopefully get to play for goodness sakes if we're ever invited or you know we just happen upon one like I did at Blue Mound last month in Wisconsin you know it's exciting to do that and i i'm hoping that this era we're seeing right now is going to be the same and Mike and Tom uh, are going to be in that crew and they're going to be out there you know designing golf courses and you get a chance to to play a golf course by a man that set up all these US Opens is pretty dang exciting so uh was very happy that Mike joined me. We touched on, you know, his decision to go into design. We touched on what it was like to set up U.S. Opens, the good, the bad, and ugly of that. 
We talked about distance for a, a good chunk, also about the U.S. Open Rota and where we might be going with that. So we kind of hit on a whole bunch of stuff. I hope you guys really enjoy it. Big thanks to all the feedback on the Phil Mickelson podcast. If you missed that one, make sure to go back and check that out. That was the last episode. But uh, yeah, let's get into it with Mike Davis. We welcome into the clubhouse for the first time Mike Davis, the CEO of the USGA. Mike, just for a little bit longer, the title not going to be, it's been next to your name for quite a while, and uh, and you're moving on to a golf course designer. How excited are you for uh, for what's up ahead for you? Well, Shane, first of all, great to be with you. And um, listen, here's what I would say. It, when I do leave the USJ in about 14 months, uh, it, it indeed will be bittersweet. It's been a wonderful organization to work with. And, you know, just, I, I love the game. And at the very root of the USGA, its mission is is for the betterment of the game. So, you know, everything that we do, <laughs> whether we succeed at it or not, sometimes I, I suppose you can question, but listen, at the heart of it, it is about making the game better. And we do so many good things for the game. And a, a lot of things, frankly, people don't even know, but it, it will be, It'll be tough because it will have been 32 years at the USGA and, you know, kind of growing up in the, um, the championship side of things and the, and the rules of golf side of things. And then eventually, you know, um, running, you know, being executive director and CEO for, for 11 of the years. Um, It's going to be sad, but listen, I'm incredibly excited for the next chapter in life. And it, I, it's, uh, you know, golf course design is always something I've had interest in. I mean, going back to even my junior golf days of doodling holes and, and you know, I've been somebody that I, I've always paid much more attention to the golf course and how it's designed, the grasses and thinking about why designers did certain things and what makes a really great golf course and what makes an average course. And I, I've always been much more focused than that is than what I shoot when I play or how my swing is, or it's just, it's something that's interested me. And, and I, and I remember when I took over as executive director in 2011, at the beginning, I, um, I knew I was probably only going to do this for 10 years. And I talked to my wife about that. And at the time I really did think that, listen, I'm going to regret it if I don't try some golf course design at some point. And so, uh, anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens, but I'm excited. I was reading up on some things you'd said when you made this announcement. I was diving into your bio. You know, you, you joined the USGA back in 1990. Of course, if people don't know, you're joining Tom Fazio II, Tom Fazio's nephew, in a firm that you guys have you guys have teamed up on, and Fazio and Davis Golf Course Design is going to be the name of that. I I didn't realize how much of a dream job what you currently and have done over the last. 15, 20 years with the USGA was. I didn't realize how passionate you were for golf course design. You know, I was a guy, Mike, that that when I was a kid, I would record, you know, sports games and listen to the announcers. That was something I always was interested in as a kid. And so, you know, when I finally got a chance to actually call live sport, it was it was really a pinch me moment personally. I'm not sure I realized how much of it the pinch me moment must have happened for you when you first got assigned you know, setting up a, a U.S. Open and USGA championships. What was that like for you now knowing how impactful the golf course in general was to you even as a, as a kid when you were doodling on your notebooks? How, how big was that when you when you first got this job? Yeah, Shane, great question in the sense that there had been so many, to, to use your, you know, descriptive pinch me moments that I've had. I mean, 
when I first started, there was a guy, PJ Boatwright, who was one of the people that, that did hire me at USJ. And, you know, he, he was a legend golf administrator. And I remember even in my first year getting to go around looking at, you know, because one of my first jobs was working with clubs that were hosting the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur and the Senior Open and Walker Cup and so on. And so you can imagine I was getting a chance to go to some of the truly great golf courses, not only in this country, but, you know, around the world. And for me, those were always and still to this day are pinch me moments. I mean, listen, I, you know, we've, those of us in golf, particularly in my position that, you know, I've gotten to know, I, whether, you know, dinner at Byron Nelson's house or playing golf with Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus or Annika Sorenstam, or just, you know, getting to know a lot of greats in the game. Those have all been such an honor and I've treasured those moments, but, you know, for me, seeing some of the great golf courses, in fact, many of the golf, great golf courses around the world, I could have never done without just access that the USJ has provided. And I've gotten to know so many of the, at least the living architects. And for me, those have been pinch me moments. I mean, I just the chance to get to know some of these and kind of pick their minds is, is for me, it's, it's, you know, listen, this, this has been a job in a lot of regards, but there have been so many moments. I just keep thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm getting the opportunity to do that. And so as I say, seeing some of the world's great golf courses have been certainly one of those and getting to know architects. So like you with announcing, this has been a, a great part of the job for me, you know, these last 32 years. Yeah. What have you learned over the years setting up championships, setting up championship golf courses, as you mentioned, going to the best golf courses in the world and spending so much time there? What have you learned from that experience that you will take with you to course design? Well, listen, I, I've always felt whether you're, you know, at a club setting up for an event, maybe it's a club championship or, or, you know, it's, it's the, it's the Tuesday with the men's league or the women's league or wh whatever it might be. I think, first of all, with setup at any level, you, you've got to understand who you're setting the golf course up for and what you want to accomplish. Um, so that's part of it, just understanding. And, and I know for me, you know, trying to understand the difference, let's say, of the women's U.S. Open players versus the men's U.S. Open players. I mean, they hit the ball differently. They, they both, both genders hit it beautifully and hit it really solid. But, you know, the, the men hit the ball in the air higher. They impart more spin. So you have to understand, you know, when a, when a ball hits the green, how is it going to react? What are they capable of doing? And, um, so I think that's part of it. Another part with uh, setting up is I really do believe understanding agronomics. I mean, how do different grasses react? I mean, Bermuda is very different from bent grass, which is very different from Polana, which is very different from Kentucky bluegrass. And I think understanding how clubs, um, you know, for instance, wet rye grass, a club will just slide through the rough beautifully. If it gets dry, it gets tacky. On the flip side, Kentucky bluegrass is almost the opposite. When it gets drier, it's right. easier to hit a ball out of. Um, when balls, I, I think understanding construction on how, when a ball hits a green, how's it going to react when it starts to dry out? You know, a bent grass, for example, on a putting green is going to dry out much different than a poana in terms of how the grass performs once it really is dry and you've got to be careful. Um, 
I think also, you know, understanding um, what weather does. I mean, humidity, the dew points, winds. You know, when you set a golf course up, if you're supposed to get a north wind and you you accidentally <laughs> or they they miss the they miss the call and you get a south wind, you've got to kind of think through what's what's the ramification there. I mean, are we going to have a situation where players can't even reach, reach the fairway on their drive or right. can't hold a green when they're playing down? And then the last, and I suppose for me, the part that's been by far the most interesting in setting up golf courses is the architecture. Um, it's what were what was the architect intending a hole to be, and where can you showcase architecture? Where can you where can you change it on a daily basis that you really get the players thinking? And so, you know, I listen. By, by and large, we set up the U.S. Open not terribly different than it was in the 1950s or 1920s. It, it's a complete test of golf. Uh, you know, you kind of, as I say, you want to get every club in the bag dirty. You want to test accuracy. You want, you, you want to, you want to test their, their recovery skills their short game skills, their ability to control their distance, the spin and, and how to handle their nerves and course management, all that. But I think that if you can really get the players thinking during a round it's it's just going to add to the test of golf and so i i you know always looked at it from an architectural standpoint of saying what are the options here i mean you might have a putting green chain where you'd say listen there's no way you're going to put a whole location um old tucked over in that corner if they're having to hit four and five irons in and so maybe if on that day that you do want to tuck it, maybe you say, listen, let's move the team ground up and let's tease them a little bit. Let, let's give them a different drive zone instead of every day where they get in a routine of saying, I know this is a driver every day off the tee, or I know it's a three wood every day off the tee. You know, I think that's part of the setup is to take all those. So the architecture, the agronomics, the meteorology, and just what the players are capable and then you try to put it together. And, you know, even if you go, because it is part science and it's part art and, and you do all that and you still might not get it right. And, and uh, as, as PJ Boatwright told me uh, more than 30 years ago, he goes, Mike, you, uh, you're never going to get a pat on the shoulder if you get 71 out of 72 hole locations, right? <laughs> Just remember that. And, and, and that's been, you know, frankly, that's the challenge of, the men's and women's U.S. Open is that we set it up closer to the edge than any other event out there. So it's easier to cross over that edge and, and have things not quite go right to where well-executed shots aren't rewarded. So, uh, but it's been, listen, overall fun just because I've, I've gotten to see so many of these great golf courses and some of the great players of all time. And it's, it's been a really, a, really an honor. Yeah, I I feel like, you know, going from a position of setting up a championship golf course for the best in the world versus what you're going to do, which is design golf courses for everybody, for for all levels of golfer. I feel like there's got to be a mentality. I'm sure you and Tom have talked at length about this, but I was just at Aaron Hills a couple of weeks ago. You know, I love Aaron Hills. I loved that U.S. Open. I thought it was just excellent start to finish. I love the idea of going to different golf courses. You know, that was something we saw a few years ago in particular with Chambers Bay, of course, and Aaron Hills, even going back to Beth Page and Torrey Pines, where we'll be returning to next year for the U.S. Open. You know, all these these golf courses that are allowed to play for public, not just a private golf course. But Aaron Hills is a championship golf course. It is a tough test of golf 
for the best in the world. And it allows non-championship golf to be played there year round. And I think of of the other end of the spectrum being kind of the Kaiser approach, right, to Bannon Dunes and all of the properties he's put together. Bannon Dunes just hosted the, hosted the U.S. Amateur. But, you know, Bannon Dunes is a place that I can take my friends that are 15, 20 handicaps and they can get around, maybe losing one ball or two, and they can make some pars and maybe make a birdie and really have that highlight moment. Where are you leaning in terms of the mentality for your design firm, knowing that championship golf is championship golf, but also these days we are seeing design firms lean a little bit more towards the everyday golfer and making sure their experience is awesome? Listen, I think, Shane, you beautifully described what what to me is one of the wonderful attributes of golf is that you play on golf courses that are very different in terms of their design, their, you know, their agronomics, weather can change, obviously a golf course day to day. And I do think that's one of the beauties that sets golf all apart from other sports. I mean, listen, yes, there are different basketball courts, but by and large, same dimension, same height of the, the rim. Um, same thing with baseball, but, but with golf, you know, you have desire to go to a Bandon Dunes or an Aaron Hills because of the golf course. Otherwise, if they were all the same, you wouldn't do that. And so to me, um, that's what makes our, one of the things that makes our game so intriguing. And, and so specific to me, what I like, um, and it, it's kind of funny because Tom Fazio and I have talked about this for probably 25 years going. And um, I think it'll be a nice balance because I tend to to want to think about how do you make a golf course as playable as you can for the beginner, for the average day golfer, but is there a way to also make it strategic and fun for the really good player that has great control of his or her golf ball? And and so I, I would tend to say I like wider golf courses. I like angles. I like the ability to bounce balls into greens. And that's not, not as if you have to do it 18 times, but, but, you know, I, listen, I love big greens, but I also love small greens. I like a golf course that maybe is a mix of those where you may have a 9,000 square foot green with undulation on it and different quadrants, but also, uh, you know, a little postage stamp green. If, if, if by and large, it's going to be short shots into it. I, I love, you know, listen, a lot of people who like architecture, love half shot pars where, you know, it's, it's almost like a par three and a half or it's a par or it's a really short par three where everybody virtually has a, some kind of lofted club into it, but you make it a little, you know, maybe it's a green with a set at a diagonal that's, that's, you know, not deep and, or it's, you know, it's risk reward par fives, or maybe, maybe it's a drivable par four, or maybe it's a par four and a half where it is a par four, but you've got to hit your two very best to get there. And so I tend to like the, the width, the angles. And, um, it's funny because a lot of people, when Tom and I announced this, they were kind of thinking maybe the opposite where, where Tom loves, just loves tough test of golf. And he's very good. He's done some courses that are just marvelous in there. And so I think it'll be a nice balance because people inherently think with me that 
geez, U.S. Open, it's going to be narrow fairways, <laughs> high rough. Impossible, <laughs> right? But that. I, I, I get out the U.S. Open courses now, and I'm like, geez, I'm glad I don't have to play this because I, I'm not sure I could. <laughs> I, I felt like that a little bit in, in 30-mile-an-hour wins at Aaron Hills the other day. I can promise you that. You know, you one thing, I now knowing what you're getting into and what you're going to do with the, with the rest of your golf career, if you will, I go back to Chambers Bay, Mike, a lot because, you know, I feel like for whatever reason, Chambers Bay is like a curse word in and around golf because people remember the not great stuff about that U.S. Open. I mean, I think it's one of the most underrated U.S. Opens we've ever had, you know, not just from the drama, but the golf course and specifically what you did in terms of the creativity of that setup. And I just wanted you to give us kind of a look into how that process worked and what you were thinking with the changing of the pars and the changing of the tees, you know, you had a par three where you could play two different team grounds, which completely changed the hole in terms of how you approach it. And then you had a hole in 18 where it was a par four and a par five, depending on where you teed off that day. I, I, as someone watching and calling it, loved it. What was, what was, what do you look back on and think about when you, when you think in terms of Chambers Bay specifically and the way you decided to get real creative with the way a U.S. Open looked? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, listen, it first hosted the 2010 U.S. Amateur won by Peter Uline. And Shane, that golf course played perfect. It, it was beautiful. It was dried out. It was tan. It was all fine fescue. Ball was bouncing. You, you had to be incredibly strategic. The way you played it, you had to understand that it may be 167 yards downwind to the to the flag stick, but you, you'd have to think, I, I want to hit it a certain trajectory. I want to land it 149 yards and have it release onto the green. Um, it just it, it played beautifully, and I think one of the things that happened on, on well, not, I think it did happen in, in 2015 for the U.S. Open is that. Through the winter, we we end up having because of some a severe winter that year. The, the green they in some ways they kind of lost the greens, and it wasn't you know certainly wasn't the ground staff or superintendent's fault. But what ended up coming in that spring was an annual poana, a very very thick bladed almost weed that came in, and when you couple that with fine fescue greens, the greens just putted. I mean, I'll just say it: they putted horribly they looked bad and so if you go back and look at you know the 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 tapes of the am the u.s amateur everybody loved how it played and it played beautiful so a, a lot of it just was some you know say what you will with some bad luck with agronomics and then that and, and rightfully so the players didn't like putting on greens that weren't true they were bouncy and and they were just not good looking and we didn't like it either. But I think that in some of the ways gets to what you were saying is that it took away from the architecture of the course and the setup of the course. But listen, I, I will also say this is that as much as people may look at that, look at what it defined. I mean, we, we got Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth. You couldn't have had a more exciting finish. And, and again, you know, you, Again, we, we can all look back and be critical. And, and listen, I have too, so it's not as if I'm denying everything. It's just that it's unfortunate that some, you know, a tough winter left us tough greens. And I, and I think the course just didn't, it didn't show the way it should have shown. And, and uh, 
But I have no doubt at some point we'll get back there with, well, we're already going to go back there with more championships, but I can't imagine it. It was such a great community and it's a public golf course. It's built on sand, you know, it's Pacific Northwest. We got great support. So I've got to think we'll get back there and I hope we get back there at some point in the future. It was awesome. I, I I loved I loved it from start to finish. And and like you said, I know the greens weren't perfect, but I, I mean, drama wise, when you think about what happened, I mean, Louis birdied six. I think he birdied six of his last seven. And you had Rory and Adam Scott firing these crazy numbers early. And then of course we get the late drama with with DJ and Spieth. I mean, I was standing probably twenty feet from Spieth when he hit that second shot uh, into eighteen. And you know, with the, how the grandstands were set up, you know, perfectly behind the green, it was just it was just awesome. It was everything. I feel like you would want to a conclusion of a championship. And so, you know, I, I always I always give a lot of kudos and credit to Chambers Bay in that U.S. Open because I feel like it's a little bit underrated. I do need to get into everybody's favorite topic right now in golf, Mike, and that's distance. People love talking about distance, and I figured if I've got you on, <laughs> we've got to tackle this as well. Uh, you've been at the USGA since 1990, I mentioned. If we go back to 1990, the average driving distance on the PGA Tour was 262.3. Today, it's 296.4. I mean, that's the average. I mean, I, I don't think you need to be a, a math expert. I, I know I'm not one, but obviously there's a big jump in that if you go back to 1990. And of course, this is on the heels of what we just went through with Bryson and Wingfoot. So where are we going with this boom in distance, if you will? And do you see it as a good thing, a bad thing, or just part of golf that we've seen over the last 100, 150 years the distance will always be a thing that gets that improves as the players improve. Well, listen, it's a complex issue. It's always been a complex issue. And when I say always, Shane, th- this issue has been for at least 125 years. 125 years, this has been an issue. So this is not something that has just happened of late. This is not, contrary to what some people think, this is not something that just came up with, you know, the two-piece golf ball and the big-headed titanium clubs. You know, you go back to the time going from the gutta percha ball to the Haskell ball. um, There was roughly a 20% increase when that happened. I mean, think about that. I mean, what we saw going from, you know, think about the early 1990s when when the better player was using a Bellotta, you know, wound golf ball with a steel shaft and hitting a a wooden driver. Um, You know, you think about from that time to now, I don't know what we've had, maybe an 8% increase or perhaps 10%. So these things have happened over the years. And, you know, we, we dug up quite a bit of material on this. And I think it was in 1910, 1911. If I read you the minutes from the USGA equipment, you know, meeting then you swear you would think it's today because these issues have been going on and on and listen i you know i guess i'll I'll start off by saying that it's an incredibly important issue i mean i personally am passionate about it because i think that this it's not as if we have an emergency but i do believe strongly and 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 certainly the usj and rna you know as organizations agree with this that it's an issue that needs to be dealt with. How it gets dealt with, I mean, I think that's the process we're working through. But as we started what we call a dis- called the Distance Insights Initiative about two and a half years ago, we spent basically two years researching 
what has happened relative to distance over the last 100 plus years? I mean, what, what were the causes of it? And, and what were the effects of it? Um, and where are we now? And where is the game going? And really put data, I mean, factual data behind it, which frankly is where so many people, people have strong thoughts about this subject. It's complicated. Some people think that what's happened with distance is disastrous for the game, continues to be disastrous. Other people would suggest that the genie's out of the bag and let athletes be athletes and let technology go where it's going to go and, and uh, deal with it. But you know, the reason we think it's so important is it's, listen, it's not just about the athlete. It's not just about how you're swinging. This is much bigger. This is, this is how distance is affecting golf courses around the world. And folks, this is not just about the PGA tour, the European tour. In other words, the male elite player, if it was just that it would kind of be a non-issue because you can find that, you know, the 35,000 golf courses around the world, you can find golf courses that can change to meet that very small group of players. I mean, small, but influential and important. This is about, you know, when you look at the data, it's crystal clear, Shane, is that you've got over a hundred year cycle of increasing hitting distances. And then what's happened on because of that is golf courses for over a hundred years have been lengthening along and it's had a profound effect on golf courses. Um, the golf courses are spending more money to change. It's causing increases in operating costs. It's, it's causing us to use more resources like water or gasoline to mow more. And this, this notion that, you know, every generation has to hit the ball further than the last. And consequently, consequently golf courses have to lengthen. We just believe it needs to end because it's, it's just not good for the game. And we believe distance is relative. It's always been relative. And Shane, if you and I go out and play, whether it's with today's technology or we, we, we wind things back and you and I decide to go out and play with hickories and in a feathery ball, you're always going to hit the ball further than me. You're, you're a better golfer than me. And, and distance is relative. And this, to me, is getting into how do we protect golf courses? Not only now, this isn't a rollback. This is actually looking forward. And so, to me, it's all about having a healthy game, an enjoyable game, a sustainable game for many generations and we're, we've just seen trends and we've seen the data is crystal clear about this. As I said, that it's just not good for the game to be forcing billions of dollars worth of change just because of increased distance. And again, this is not a PGA tour issue. This is an issue for all of the game because if it was just the PGA tour issue, why are we seeing golf courses around the world that aren't even hosting tour events lengthen. So, you know, listen, to put another way, all we're trying to do, Shane, is fit the game on golf courses. We, we want the equipment to fit and, and the players to fit on golf courses. We're not trying to take away athleticism. And, and, and maybe a, put to, you know, a final comment would just be, what other sport would allow their arenas to, to have to change the way golf is? Right. You don't see baseball changing stadiums because they're using titanium bats and hot baseballs. That's exactly what has happened with the game of golf. And 
and it's and it's been detrimental. It's cost and, and for for those golfers that would say, listen, I'm not the problem. Don't penalize me. Just do something about the male elite golfer. They don't get it because it's causing courses everywhere to change. Even if you don't play the back tees, you're having to pay the cost, the environment, you know, paying the cost, extra time to play courses is so it, it, when you look at the data, a rational person would say, you know what? I hadn't thought about it big picture enough. I get it now. Now, in terms of where we go, you know, there's a process to this. I honestly can't sit here today and say, I know the tactics that they're going to use. I really don't know. In fact, much of this is probably going to be done when I'm gone from the USGA. But, um, but I think that what we want to do is work with all the constituents. We, we want to work with you know, we want to work with golf course architects. We want to work with the tours. We want to work with the golf course equipment manufacturers and say, how can we look at the long-term betterment of the game? We want to make sure that we're not doing anything to harm the recreational player. Because listen, you and I know if we went into a room and we said, okay, a thousand golfers, everybody raise your hand of who would like to hit the ball less distance. You wouldn't have one person. Not one but, but I, mean, I think that if they understood that golf, you know, distance is relative and that, you know, if something one day is done, you just go up and play from a shorter tee. And, and anyway, so, so that's, you know, I guess a wordy way to, to, to give you a perspective on it. It's, it's a complicated issue, but I, for one, feel strongly that something needs to get done long term, but in a way that works for, you know, all constituencies. Yeah, I think that you hit on something. I I personally am not one of those golf people that really get up in arms about a lot of the things that I think golfers now get up in arms about. But I will say the thing that I get scared of, and you touched on this, is you know you my my buddy Andy Johnson, who does a great job at the Fried Egg and and uh, and the Shotgun Start, was talking after Wingfoot about all the money that went into extending the 16th hole, right? I mean, you've got to, you talked about it. It's expensive to make golf courses longer, especially these historic golf courses like Wingfoot. And you put all this money and effort and time into making that tee on 16, you know, 30 yards further back and Bryson hits driver wedge. And you kind of sit there and go, was that all worth it, right? I mean, if he's still hitting a wedge into this par four, it's kind of a waste of our time. I keep thinking about this with Augusta and 13. You know, people have been pining, are they going to extend 13? 13's a driver wedge par five for a lot of these guys now. And I keep thinking to myself, well, I know they have the money. I know they can extend 13, 30, or 40 yards. But what's that really going to do? Is that going to do anything? I feel like, no. I mean, gone are the days we're seeing, you know, players haven't hit two and three irons into 13 and 15 off hanging lies. At the Masters, that's just not really where golf is right now. And that's the one thing that I get scared of as a golf fan is it feels like the integrity of the way the golf course was meant to be played isn't played like that anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of that, Shane. It's, it, you know, a lot of times what we're seeing now, and again, let, let, you, let's take the focus off just the tour player. Let, let's think about just a, just a regular golf course that over the years has felt compelled because of what the longer players are doing at that particular golf course to change. So they either say, I need to build another tee further back. Maybe they have the land, but they have to run the irrigation back there. Now it's another tee to mow. It's longer to walk for the player to get back there. So it adds to the pace of play. 
or maybe they have to purchase the land, or, or sometimes when they don't have the land, what do they do? Well, let's go ahead and completely um, redo bunkers. Let, let's push the bunkers further down the hole. Well, that's an unneeded expense. It really does change the nature of the architecture. It might not work quite right for the average golfer, and now maybe you've compromised the architecture there. But the point of it is, is that we all want to hit the ball further. We don't want to do anything to compromise these wonderful athletes, and we want to allow them to showcase their skills. But why do we need to continually add expense to the game and some, in, some place, in some cases compromise the architectural integrity for some players who play that golf course? And, and it's just, as you look at the data, it's so crystal clear that something needs to get done. And, and so I really think it's so obvious that I, I have a lot of faith that it will get done. I just don't know exactly how it's going to get done and, and how it's going to get done in a way that makes sure that the average golfer continues to love the game and it works for the elite golfer and it works for the tours and it doesn't hurt equipment manufacturers. And so it, it can get done. It's this, listen, I look at it that, what, what we're in right now is a stage where we finally have crystal clear data. We didn't have that data before. And, and I think it just allows us to be process-driven and fact-driven as opposed to just, you know, anecdotal. I, I, I'm okay with increased distance or I'm not okay with it. It just it allows us as, a, as an industry to work together. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
Is there a gold standard? I've always wanted to ask you this. Is there a gold standard championship that people, you know, in the USGA and the RNA and and even at Augusta, you guys kind of talk about still, you know, 1980 or 85. Is there a championship that you guys consider this is the this is the US Open or Women's Open that we want to mirror all championships after? You know, <laughs> I, 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 they, we get this question, um, maybe not put exactly that way, but the question really is, where does golf want to be? What era? And, and and when you think about it, and I've read a good bit about it, I've talked to players that were you know, quite a bit older than me and ones that are quite younger than me. And it seems to be everybody's mindset tends to be, what was golf when I was growing up playing? And that, that because listen, I, I, I can remember a dinner one, at one time I had going back um, close to 10 years, well, maybe not, seven or eight years ago, I, I had a, literally a dinner with Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, just the three of us. And we were talking about it. And I, and I just, I asked a lot of questions, but I just listened. And it was fascinating because the two of them are so passionate on this and they would, I think if I were summarizing it, they would tend to say when they were younger, when they were playing their best golf, that was kind of where golf needs to get back to. But, you know, if you go back, Shane and Reed, and you talk about players of the Bob Jones era, when they were using hickory shafts and a different type of golf ball, and all of a sudden, you know, in, in the 19th, mid 30s, late 30s, when things started to move from the hickory shaft to the steel shaft, you can read the same comments back then about, geez, the game's going to be ruined. There's a different skill set that's needed. Same thing. So the point is, if you ask a young tour pro today or a young good player, they they never played the game with a ball that spun quite as much. Right. They, they never played the game with with persimmons and and where you really couldn't swing as hard as you possibly can at a golf ball because you couldn't control the golf ball. You, you, there was a the sweet spot was so much smaller. They never played a game when you short side yourself and you can pull out a 64 degree wedge. And, you know, when I was growing up playing competitively, no one used more than 56 degrees and, and there was a big flange to it. And so when you short sided yourself, you, you were almost forced to open up the blade and it was a riskier shot. And in same way with hitting a short bunker shot, it was just harder, took more skill. Is that better or worse? I, I don't know. But I, what I do know is it's just different. And so to answer your question, I really do think it depends on your age and kind of where you were at a time when you think this is how golf should be, because I think it's generational in nature. I want to touch on the idea of U.S. Open rotas. I mean, I I, I think you're either on one camp or the other. I, I personally live in the camp that I've loved the last 20 years of U.S. Opens. I've loved the fact that you'll occasionally get a, Oakmont and a Shinnecock mixed with an Aaron Hills in Chambers Bay. And I I enjoy that because I think the U.S. Open has a lot of faces. And I think it could be hosted at a lot of different golf courses and a lot of different looking championships. But I do feel like we are moving towards, at least if you look at the lineup over the next 10, 12 years, towards more of a U.S. Open rota. Do you feel like that's where we're going to go, where there's five or ten golf courses that are hosting this championship, kind of a revolving door of those golf courses? Or, or are there always going to be these I don't want to call them random, but these outside U.S. Open hosted golf courses that will occasionally get one of these championships. 
Well, Shane, I, I do believe you're going to see a hybrid. Um, and listen, I don't know how long that'll last. I mean, in my 30 plus years at the USGA, you know, just in that period of time, we've changed philosophies on kind of where we go, when we go and how often we go. But I, I think that in the, you know, let's say the next decade or so, there is a there's there's a view with the USGA and and frankly a lot of that's come from talking to players who play in the US Open players who formerly played in the US Open and saying you know what do you think we should do where do you think we should go and and so we've we've done a lot of this based on their impact and good, good data research and I, I think that you start with a premise that the United States has more great golf courses than any place in the world, but by a long shot. Um, so I think for us moving personally, moving the U.S. open around, not just geographically, but to different types of golf courses. Uh, you know, you think about a Piners number two that had those, you know, it's a wider golf course now. It doesn't have grass rough. It's got, you know, the, the sandy kind of uh, native areas. And then you've got more traditional tree line golf courses like Wingfoot with the high rough. You mentioned Chambers Bay, but I personally love the fact that we go to this, these, this country's greatest golf courses. And I mean, think about this, Shane. How many, think about how many U.S. Open sites we go to that are in the top 20, 25 courses in the country. Right. It's amazing. In the world. In the world. And, and so I, I think you're going to continue to see us go there. I think, generally speaking, the USGA loves history tradition. So you're going to see us go to more of the old historic sites that, you know, maybe Bob Jones won on or Ben Hogan or Jack Nicholas or, or Tiger Woods. But you'll also see us, I, I don't, I definitely don't think you're going to see the USJ abandon newer courses. Um, I think personally, I think that would be a giant mistake. I mean, I suspect there could be courses not even built yet that maybe in my lifetime, you see a US Open played on. So Nobody at USJ is saying we should abandon new golf courses because I think we all believe that if it's if it's if it's a good enough golf course and it can be a good test of golf and it and it works operationally and it, it does move us around geographically that we can do that. On the other hand, what what is you know the data really does say is that the players want us to come back to some of the great golf courses more often. They just they want to right. get to Shinnecock more often. They want to get to Piners more often. They want to get to Pebble Beach more often. They want to get to Oakmont more often. Um, and so that's really, when, when people talk about a road up, that's, that's going to be, I think, what you see is just us getting back to the courses more often. And you know, we were back at Wingfoot. It, it, it took us 14 years to get back from 06 to 2020. And so I think we only had, what was it? 15, 16, 17 players who had played in 2006. And I think there's a belief that, you know, allow the public, allow the viewers, allow the players to get to know a wing foot better by going there more often. So I think that's what you'll see, but I, I really don't think you'll see, and I hope you don't see us abandon going to, um, you know, newer courses or, or maybe, you know, listen, when we went to Marion in 2013, we hadn't been there since the early 1980s. And, and here's one of the great historic treasures in golf. 
and and to celebrate that, to allow golfers and and the fans to see that again, I think it was a great thing. And and I I hope we don't see that. I mean, we're going back to the country club in 2022. We hadn't been there since you know Curtis was on his Curtis Strange was on his roll, wearing back to back opens in '89 and '90. And it's one of the five founding clubs of the USJ. And I mean, that should be a marvelous US Open. And, you know, we'll celebrate history when we go back there. I'm looking at the lineup now. I mean, Torrey, Country Club, LACC, which is going to be awesome. Pinehurst, Oakmont, Shinnecock, Pebble. I mean, the lineup is is kind of a heavy hitter row, that's for sure. So, I mean, exciting stuff. I do feel like at least someone that was on the broadcasting side of these championships, I do get the sense that when they are at these historic places, these as you said, these places that have seen the likes of a Hogan and a Nelson and, you know, a Sneed playing on the golf courses, it does elevate the feel of the championship. So I agree with you. Now, Mike, I'm going to ask you a question as Mike Davis, not the CEO of the USGA. This is just Mike Davis being Mike Davis. What, in your opinion, is the perfect championship golf course? For me, it's one that really, really allows players to showcase different parts of the game. I, I guess I don't like to, I, I love courses that allow players to play a whole differently. So it's not just 156 guys are going to, or, or, or women are going to play a whole exactly the same way. I love the idea that somebody might take a driver and challenge a corner and somebody else takes something less than a driver off. I, I like that, that, there's risk reward where you can dangle a carrot and all of a sudden say, listen, you can try it. And if you succeed, you're going to get rewarded. But if you try it and don't succeed, you're going to be penalized more than somebody who played conservatively. And so, you know, really using all 14 clubs in the bag and making the player think, I mean, to me, that's one of the things that separates average architecture from great architecture is it really makes the player think and, and it gives the player options, choices, angles. And, and some of that's done by how a hole is routed. Some of it's done by the green itself. Some of it's done by how you set a hole up on that particular day, how dry it is, what the wind's doing, where the hole location is, where the T markers are. Some of it, even how you prepare the rough. I mean, do you want just pitch out rough? that really says we we are putting accuracy at a premium or do you want to watch somebody who says listen if you hit it in the rough you're going to get penalized however we're going to allow you to show your shot making skills i mean it's one of the reasons i i really do believe that jack nicholas was arguably as good or, or the best u.s open player on the men's side ever is that he not only managed his game well but he was exceptionally good at recovery out of the rough he had that high swing plane he opened the face of his club he took it up high never released on the club and he just knew how to play out a thick rough he didn't have a a shallow swing think about tiger woods think about how great he's been at recovery shots over the years and and how exciting that been i mean Listen, the lead up to Wingfoot this year, when you go back, and I did watch it, when you watch 2006 and what Phil Mickelson did, beyond belief how great he played from a recovery standpoint, because he really (laughs) did not drive the ball well at all, but yet his 
skill set and then the way the course was set up allowed him to, to show that skill. And to me, I, 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 that's what I like in it. I, I just, I like a course that creates excitement and it, it allows the players to take risk or play conservative and, and, and to change the course up on a daily basis. I, and I think there's a lot of places that can do that. All right, Mike, last question. Looking back on your tenure setting up these championships, what was your best setup U.S. Open in your opinion? Oh, boy. This is you having to pat yourself on the back. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's not the most fun thing to do, but I'm assuming one pops up somewhere in the front of the brain. Well, listen, the one I think that, so I've done every U.S. Open, not, not necessarily me personally setting up the golf course, but everyone since 1990 where Hale Irwin won at Medina. And in that time period, and that's whatever, 30, 31 USO, USO, I guess it would be 31 US Opens. Um, the one that I thought was the most intriguing is, is when Tiger won in 2008. I mean, to think about this, Shane, he, he gets in a playoff against Rocco Media, who could not play more different golf. I mean, they, right. They, the way they, they approach the game and play the game are two ends of the spectrum. They're two wonderful people. But I look back on that one and I think that the amount of drama in 2008 at Torrey Pines, I just don't think it can be surpassed, at least in those 31 opens that I saw. And some of it, I think that the golf course, the way it was set up, presented, um, did allow from that allow for that and others we just had a stroke of good luck where you had tiger on a on a basically a broken leg um you know winning that open making shots that you just you can't i mean that round three where he makes two eagles on the back nine and you know you think about that putt to get him into the playoff on the final the 72nd hole and then the excitement of the monday playoff it was that was an unbelievable u.s open i mean that's that's right up there with 1913 with Francis. We met 1960 with Arnold Palmer at Cherry Hills when he's getting chased by, you know, an older Ben Hogan and an amateur named Jack Nicholas. And you think about some of the great U S opens of all time. I mean, I, I would put 2008 up that with, with any of them. Yeah. that It's every time you watch it and every time you have, you see Tiger's putt on the last hole, he makes it, you see it bumping down the hill. You're like, this is not going to go in. And it goes in every time. And Dan had this unbelievable call. It was, it was great. Mike, I just want to let you know, once you get out of the position you're in and you get into golf course design, you're going to have to reach out to, you know, idiots like me about coming out and checking out your golf course. So I, I don't want you to lose these invitations. You got to send this media invite in once the golf courses start to open. I would welcome that. It'll be it'll be fun and interesting. I'm not sure what I'm getting myself into totally, but I'm looking forward to the challenge. Well, I appreciate the time, Mike. Always excited to talk to you, and I've always wanted to have you on the podcast, so thanks so much for the time. Okay, Shane, keep up the great work. You're terrific at what you do, and, and thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Two thumbs up and a big thanks to Mike Davis for joining me and giving me all that time. Uh, always nice when people carve out, you know, I mean, 45 minutes of your day when you're a busy person's a lot. It's a lot of time. And so I was uh, thankful for that. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you like the show, rate and review it. If you could, it helps our show reach more people and more eyeballs and, and, and AirPods, if you will, is a good thing for podcasts. Uh, you can follow the clubhouse on Twitter and Instagram at the clubhouse pod. Follow that. We occasionally give giveaways, especially around the holiday season, where we send out koozies and stickers, maybe even a hat or two. So uh, do that if you could, and we'll be back next week. The Clubhouse with Shane Bacon is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody. 
and every body. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.